Wonderful. Uh, it'd be good to have some Bibles, if we could grab some Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you haven't brought a Bible, that's fine. There's some Bibles coming out. They'll be at the back, or you can get out your Bible app. We're going to be reading from a book called um, Titus, a letter, a letter to a chap called Titus, and the book has his name on it. I will do that in a moment. I'll give a bit of an introduction in a second, but uh, do have that open in front of you. I want to be the kind of church, I want us to be a kind of a church where Bibles are open, and in these moments when we're speaking and sharing, you're able to look down and say, is this guy just making this stuff up, or is it coming out of the scriptures? So it's great, actually, when, I, when you hear a bit of rustling, I like that sound, I like that sound in church, that's a church where people have their Bibles out, well, you can't do it with an app, but... Uh, Right, I'm going to read in just a moment, but first let me ask this question. How do you change? We're doing three sermons, we're doing three talks from Titus, talking about church and good health. What does it mean to be a healthy church? But let me just pose this question first of all. How do you change a city or an area for, for good? How do you transform an area? If we were parachuted in, imagine we've all just been parachuted in. We've, we've landed on the Essex coast. Here we are in this place called Southend-on-Sea, and... Um, our mission, our task, is to transform this area for the Lord. How do you do that? What do you set out doing, first of all? What are the things you're going to do? There's lots of things you could do. But what's, what are the important things? What should we do? What should we do first and foremost? If we know what those things are, then we can think about our church life together and think about whether we're healthy. But we need to know what the important things are. And Paul's going to help us with that. So let's just read. I'm going to read you. I'm going to read you nine verses. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. But here's the first nine verses. Have a listen to how Paul encourages Titus, a young Christian, who's got the task of running the church in a place called Crete. I'll, I'll go through it a bit more in a moment. But here he goes. This is Paul. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now hold that open. Don't close it. Hold it open. We're going to look at that together. Let me tell you about Titus. Let me tell you about Crete. 
Crete, uh, we're, we're speaking in sort of first century world, right? This is the AD 60s or something like that. So not modern day Crete, but ancient Crete. And um, a big island, pretty big. Anyone been to Crete? Oh yeah, great, few hands. Um, about two and a half times the size of Essex, 170 times the size of Southend, quite a big place. And with quite a bad reputation in those days. So let me just read you one extra verse, which gives you a bit of a flavor. This is a little bit later on. This is chapter 1, verse 12. Apostle Paul still says, One of Crete's own prophets, so one of your own guys, has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And then just to own it, he actually says afterwards, this saying is true. <laughs> yep. It was a trade route. The, um, the, the island was in the middle of a massive trade route from, from all parts of the Mediterranean. And of course, that, that brings with it many blessings, but it brings with it the opportunity for pirates. It was well known for pirates. You know, it's not just Cornwall. <laughs> Back in the day, there was, uh, there was pirates around Crete. And um, that made it deeply corrupt, and there was a lot of unsavory goings-on. One guy, this is a bit of first-century trip advisor for you, Guy called, um, guy called Plutarch said this. He said, uh, Crete is nice. There are no dangerous animals, and you don't need them, because the people are themselves wild animals. In, in fact, that's, that's what it says when you read the word evil brutes. The actual word there is animals. They're animals. There was a 5th century dictionary that was compiled, and it had the verb to be Cretan, which meant to be a liar. So it was like the whole place had gathered such a reputation that if you were being a Cretan, you were just a liar. That was what you were. So you can see that it's not such a great place. Now this is encouraging why. I'll tell you why. Because if Titus can go in there and change that place, then there's hope for anywhere. Powerful little letter. Paul is supremely confident that his fellow co-worker Titus can get in there and change that place for the Lord. He's not phased by the state of Crete. Absolutely confident. Do you see what he says in verse um, five? He goes, the reason I left you in Crete, you've got to finish the job. You've got to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He's absolutely confident it can happen. This can happen. You can get churches up and running throughout this island, no problem. And he's going to help him see how to do it. And if it can be done in Crete, first century Crete, then it can be done anywhere, including Southend. So, all he really needs, these are the two things, these are my two points. This is what Paul is encouraging Titus to do. He says you need leaders who hold firmly to the truth. That's the first thing. Right, I'm going to go to the end of the passage in a moment. You need leaders who are going to hold firmly to the truth. That's what they must do. And then secondly, he says much more about this. He says you need leaders who are themselves being transformed by the truth. And of course, Titus must be both of those things. He's got to do those things. He's got to 
hold that trustworthy message. He's got to be a safeguarder of the truth, and he himself must be someone transformed by the truth in order to bring about this kind of leadership and these kind of churches. Okay, so let's have a look at that first point. Hold firmly to the truth. This is verse 9. So have a look at verse 9. This is what he says. He, he's talking about elders. He's talking to Titus about elders. He, elders, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Let me tell you a story about my father-in-law. Um, he's, he's retired now, but in retirement he used to do uh, quite a lot of work for a, an auction house called Bonhams uh, up in the northwest, Chester. And every now and again, um, they would get some really, really priceless piece of usually sports memorabilia, like a cricket bat or something. And it needed to be transported to London, uh, to their, you know, big mothership auction house in Knightsbridge or somewhere like that. And so Robert had the task of, uh, of actually doing it, careering this bat or, you know, book or something down to London personally himself. They wouldn't trust... DPD or Royal Mail or anyone else, it had to be, we give it to you, you get it down there, you get it down there safely. Now, why am I telling you this? This is a refreshingly simple task. It's not a, a lot of people could do that. It's not, it's not a tremendously difficult thing when you need to drive a car. But you go, you get the deposit, what's handed to you, you get it in your car, you drive down to London and you deliver it safely to its destination. Now, that really essentially is the task of an elder, of a leader in the church. And it's not really that much more than that. It is to receive this trustworthy message that you've been handed to you, you've been taught a trustworthy message. There you go, there it is. Now, Faithfully deliver that on. Now, what we do is we tend to think that leaders have to be, you know, very artistic, wonderful, lots of flair, lots of charisma, very gifted, all these different things. Um, but those are all just bolt-ons. The task is refreshingly simple. In fact, I'd, it's almost as if to say um, it's almost quite mundane in a way. It's almost that level of, here is the precious gospel, here is the package, take that and deliver it safely. Be faithful in doing that. Don't try and dress it up or change it. In fact, part of it is fending off threats. Right? When uh, my father-in-law, as he's going down to London, if someone came along to him and said, hey, how about you take this cricket bat instead? He's like, no, <laughs> I've got to take this one. You know, got to fend off those threats, but essentially it's, deliver the truth. That is the task of every Christian leader. Take that precious cargo, the gospel, and pass it on. Why is that so important? Let's go back up to verse 1. It's important because, verse 1, it is the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Let's read it together. This is Paul. Paul's a little CV here, or a little job description. This is what Paul does. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, to further the faith of God's elect and to further their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. 
so that he wants people to become Christians, he wants to further the faith of the elect, he wants people to become Christians, and then he wants them to go further in their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now, do you put those ideas together in your head? Knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. How do we get godliness? How do we transform a city to produce a godly people who love the Lord and love others? How do you produce that? Paul goes, it's the knowledge of the truth, it's handing over that deposit, the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Do you agree with that? The, uh, there is a tendency, I think, to say, if I meet someone who's bothered about truth, they're probably going to be the kind of person who's a bit fussy, fussy about lists, um, fussy about getting things right, probably not a people person. If I've got someone in front of me who's bothered about truth, probably quite argumentative, maybe. Now, we're not talking about that. In fact, in chapter 3, we'll see in a couple of weeks' time, Paul's like, no, not that kind of fussiness about silly things. But he is nevertheless passionate. Truth changes lives. And I think we all know this instinctively. So I tell my children, you've got to clean your teeth, otherwise your teeth will rot. That is true, and it needs to change your behavior. <laughs> you need to eat your vegetables. In fact, the dentist tells me you need to floss, otherwise I will have to get the drill out. It is true, it should change my, that truth should go in, change my behavior. Look both ways before you cross the road, or chances are you will die. I tell my kids over and over and over again. They used to be, Matthew, when he was a little bit longer, he used to walk up to the road and go, <laughs> like that, and then start walking out. <laughs> no, you've actually got to look. Otherwise, it could be very serious for you. That is true, and it should change your behavior. Here's one that's now regularly in front of us, slightly more serious. This is an interesting one. Um, how are we going to deal with a climate emergency? Uh, and particularly, the question often I think people are asking in this case is, how do we produce human beings who are less selfish, who are less self-interested, who are less greedy, who are less, um, less keen on getting you know, everything they need for themselves and all that luxury and all that kind of, and starting to be more generous, more self-denying, more uh, socially minded, socially aware, ready to lay down their privileges and all that kind of thing. How do you get that happen? It's interesting. It's almost like a sort of slightly Puritan movement. We need that heart change. We need people to actually be more socially conscious. We need to people to deny their appetites you know, and do things differently, it might be at personal cost. That's, what, um, that's what's going to bring about a change in uh, the situation for the planet. So how do you get that to, how do you get that in society at large? How do you get people to do those things? The answer is, you keep going with the truth. They keep showing you, or keep 
proving to you the earth is warming up and it's going to be disastrous. We'll, we'll give it to you from every angle. We'll give you the scientists. We'll get them to tell you. We'll get young people to talk to you. We'll get the news journalists to talk to you. We'll stick it on your Facebook feeds. We'll put it on all the websites. We'll put it everywhere. We'll put it on food packaging. Because they've got to get the truth in. You see? And if the truth goes in, that might... Because they're not talking about just doing recycling on a Wednesday. They're talking about a whole life, a heart change. We instinctively know this. You've got to get the truth in, otherwise things won't come out the other side. It is about getting the truth in. But here's another... Here's another way to change your life. Here's another radical truth. A slightly more positive one. Christ is risen. That is a radical truth with far-reaching consequences. Christ is risen, the savior of the world. Forgiveness is available. Anyone, anywhere can call upon that name and have the hope, he talked about it here, the hope of eternal life. Now that's a radical truth. And that's a stronger truth, isn't it? You put that in a life, you put that engine inside a heart, that is powerful. But you see how it's similar. You've got to keep getting at it. You've got to put it in. You've got to sort of feed it in any which way. That truth has got to come in. It's got to come in when you're a child, you know, your children. Talk to them about these truths. In our church life together, week after week, in our Bible studies, we've been talking just a moment ago about midweek Bible studies. There, we're just dwelling on, thinking together. We're coming at that truth in all these different angles because it's that truth, that radical truth at the center that will change lives. The knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So, that's the first thing. And Paul has absolute confidence that a truth like that can change someone's life. So he says, basically, to Titus, teach it. It's your job. Teach, 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 teach. He says it. I haven't read, read the whole letter, but if you do, you'll see it comes up all the time. Chapter 2, verse 1, teach what is in accordance with sound doctrine. Chapter 2, verse 15, these then are the things you must teach. Chapter 3, verse 8, I want you to stress these things. Teach it, underline it, stress it so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Teach it. If you're a leader in the church, at any level, there are many, many levels of sort of church leadership. Even, in, even as we gather like this, when we speak to one another, as we meet in homes, as we meet in the different places, there are many, many levels of church leadership. At every level, we need to teach and imbibe these truths. And it's not just Paul who says this. Let me remind you of this. Okay, remember when Jesus was leaving his disciples and he gave them his final words, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I'm with you to the end of the age. It's the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So the church needs teachers all over the place. We need to teach one another. We need people who are called and set apart to teach. 
And at every level we need those teachers. So important. And then leaders must be themselves. So if that's their task, you've got this package. So you think of the career, you've got the package, there it is, you've been handed it to you, faithfully pass that on. You've got to deliver that. You've got to get it in. You've got to safely deliver it. That's the job. And then he says, those leaders themselves, and he goes on much more about this section, must be people who have been transformed by the truth. Let me read you verse 6 to 8 again. Just take it in. Right, this is the, when when uh, Titus is thinking, who am I, who can I appoint as elders for this place full of constant liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons? Who can I, who can I get to be elders? This is the list. Verse 6. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And then he must hold. It's the trustworthy message. Now, can I just say, just very briefly at this point, Paul assumes here that the, his assumption to Titus is that these elders, these leaders, will be men. Now, just before I say that, just before I just caveat that ever so slightly, can I actually just appeal to the men momentarily? I just don't want to lose that. Men, brothers, are we aspiring to this? When you look down that list of qualities there, do you think to yourself, yes? Is the truth of the risen Lord Jesus more and more producing that in me? Can I just let the men hang with that for a moment? But I do want to say, and I could make a case, and I would want to make a case, I'm not going to do it here. Maybe we'll do it on Bible Live at some stage. But I do want to extend this out to women as well. There's, there's a place absolutely in leadership and running churches and running all sorts of ministries for women too. But let's go with Paul for a moment. Let's just stick there. Um, he says, all right, this is what he says. It's basically three categories in someone's character that he says these things have got to be there. They've got to be there for someone who's going to be in leadership in the church. Number one, publicly blameless. This is verse six. He says, an elder must be blameless and faithful to his wife. A, literally, a one-woman man is what it literally reads like in the Greek. And blameless. Now, that doesn't mean this person is sinless but publicly blameless. So I'll give you an example. If uh, you were being thinking about uh, leadership in the church in some, in some category, and I came down to your place of work, perhaps, or amongst your friends, and I said, you know what, um, this person, John, I don't know, they're thinking about becoming a leader in the church. Um, tell me a little bit about John. And if they turn around to me and say, oh, he's... <laughs> Okay, he's very easily angered. He's a bit sharp. He gets annoyed very quickly. He does get drunk quite a lot. 
and uh, he's a bit of a pain. He never shows up to work on time. In fact, he pulls a lot of sickies, <laughs> right? All that sort of thing. Then at that stage, I'm like, all right, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Not suitable, right? Not, not a suitable candidate. In fact, if the church does appoint someone like that to leadership, what does that say about the church? So instead, you might hope, might you, if I went amongst colleagues and I said, listen, I've got a chap called John. I want to appoint him to leadership in the church. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, John, yeah, John. Well, I've known John for years. He was a lazy, evil brute and glutton and drunkard and everything else. But you know what? There has been a massive change in that man. He still makes mistakes, but you know what? He is quick to say sorry. His temper has completely changed. He's modest. He's generous. Like that, you're like, bingo. Bingo. That is what you want. Church leadership. Someone who is publicly blameless and people can see it. Their life is being transformed by the truth. And then secondly, it's already bearing fruit. So this is verse 6, this is the second half. In a smaller situation, you can already see that this person is producing fruit in their own circumstances. So it says, faithful to his wife, a one-woman man, a man whose children believe, or it could be, if you look at the foot, footnote there, a man whose children are trustworthy, and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. They are not like the Cretans around them. There is a situation in the family, in the sphere of influence of which this person, this candidate, is leading, in which, again, that knowledge of the truth is producing godliness. So in their ministerial area right now, in their family life, might, they might not have a family, but they might be sort of leading a small group, or they might be leading in other contexts. And Paul's saying to Titus, you need to find someone who's already doing it. It's already evident in the lives that they're touching right now. The same, the same principles working out. They are sharing that deposit. They're sharing that, that precious cargo. That truth is being handed over. And it is producing godliness. It's happening already. That's the second thing. And then thirdly, this kind of negative, positive pair of things. So it's just a whole list there. Don't be drunk, don't be quick-tempered, don't be violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. It is completely the opposite to the culture around them. See that? Where all the culture, they're all jumping on pirate ships. Come on, let's go and get some loot down at the local harbour. You, leader, must be completely different. And then all these lovely positive things, he says, rather, someone who is hospitable. Now, don't think, just when you see that word, don't think uh, uh, they're good at running a tea party or something like that. The word there is, um, is the opposite to a xenophobe. You know, a xenophobe is someone who just hates everyone. So, opposite to that, I, I have a heart for everyone, anyone. Hospitable in that, in that sense. I, I am... I am not afraid of people who are different to me. I'll welcome them in. 
hospitable like that. One who loves what is good. I love it. One who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. You know, right the way throughout the New Testament, there is no search for heroes. But there's plenty of talk and plenty of searching for people who are holy. If you, see, if you want to, if you want to build a megachurch, right, if you want to have 5,000 people rock up to your church on a Sunday, you do need a hero. You need someone who is supremely gifted, extraordinarily charismatic, brilliant with words, an entrepreneur, can run effectively like a massive um, non-profit organization. You need someone who is absolutely outstanding. If you want a megachurch. But if you want to change a city or an area the size of Crete, eight and a half thousand square kilometers, you need to appoint holy people everywhere, not heroes. Holy, godly, loving, generous, spirited people all over the place. You won't build megachurches like that, but you will change a city like that. And I just, again, it's one of those, it's one of these passages that actually is refreshingly beautiful and releasing. You don't have to be. There's not much here about gifts. Notice that? doesn't say this person needs to be a brilliant speaker. They need to be very good at getting up front. They've got to have all those skills of managing this, that, and the other, a billion different tasks. They've got great on emails, phone, everywhere. Those things might be good, but they're not in the list. Holy people is what's, that's what we're after. In fact, I think it's something like 72 times, 74 times, something like that, the word saint or saints is used in the New Testament. It's virtually zero mention of heroes or champions or those kind of words. The New Testament, the Apostle Paul, Titus, in Crete, they're looking for godly, temperate, long-suffering, gentle, eager to do what is good, hospitable men and women. That is how you build a healthy church and that is how you change a place like Crete or a place like Southend. So how do we get there, brothers and sisters? Those two things. Principally for Titus, wasn't it? It was about the truth, it was about knowledge of the truth. That package is vitally important. What we're handed down to us, the truth about Jesus and his resurrection at Easter time, that is the, that is the engine for social change. That is what produces Christians. That truth produces Christians and it produces godliness in Christians. So that package is precious cargo. You've got to ship it Having received it, you've got to ship it on to the next generation or to the people in front of you in your workplace or wherever it is. That's the job. Take the truth and you pass it in. That's the job. And that truth should be ourselves in our own church life and as we look for leadership, as we look for leaders in the churches, that truth should be coming in 
and transforming me and transforming all of us. And we will have a healthy church and we will have a church in a city that can be powerfully transformed for the gospel. Let's pray together. Living Lord God, we thank you so much for Easter time. Christ is risen. He is alive. He is at your right hand. He is speaking out our names to you, Father, and praying and interceding for us. He will one day return in great glory and gather up the elect from all over the world and take us into a new creation future. And Father, these truths, these truths... When they sink in, they are deep, profound, and utterly life-transforming. I pray that they would transform us first, me first, and they would transform us as we look to appoint more and more people through the ministry and work of this church into positions, into leadership, into roles, into different things. As we, Lord, I pray as we, God willing, plant churches from here, in the years to come. That that trustworthy message, that good deposit, that precious gospel might be guarded and passed on for generations to come. We pray in Jesus' name.